Well, you noticed in the long Old Testament lesson today, um, wonderfully read, by the way, um, there was a recurring theme. So God created, and then he said, it is good. Uh, in Hebrew, um, the word for good is tov, T-O-V. Um, but they don't use good, better, and best. The way that you say good, better, and best in Hebrew is if something is good, you say tov. If something's very good, you say tov, tov. And if it is spectacularly good, guess what you say? Tov, tov, tov. That's why in the service, <clears throat> when we have the sanctus, uh, it's holy, holy, holy. Because that's the way you, you exclaim something in its ultimate. Uh, and if something's really worthy of celebration, then you say mazel tov. And a mazel refers to the constellation of stars that are without number. And so the implication is we're tov, tov, toving now through the end of time as we're saying how good things were. But God created and he said it was good. Now the relevance for us today is that this service of confirmation is one of the windows of supernatural life for us. Um, there are many supernatural touch points for us um, at baptism, when we're uh, born of the Spirit, at communion, uh, where we receive the body and blood of Christ. Um, today, in confirmation, uh, we are uh, invoking the power of the Holy Spirit to come to confirm, come with strength, con meaning with, firming strength, and to bring and, um, gifts and to manifest His. Um, presence uh, in a wonderful way. Now that could be pretty intimidating to say they're going to lay hands on me and pray for God to do something supernatural. Um, you know that I could understand why that might make somebody nervous, but not if you remember Tov Tov Tov. God is only good. He doesn't ever give anything that is not good. He is, by his character, constrained to only give good gifts. And so while there may be things that are a surprise, um, that he may um, do things that we weren't expecting, it's always, always, always going to be good. And so it's always a great thing to pray, if you have something for me, Lord, I want to receive it. Um, you will never regret a gift that the Lord gives or the fruit of his manifest uh, presence in your life. Um, so the day has encouragement for all of us to remember that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit and strengthened. But today in particular, we're praying for and with the confirmands for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and be uh, given in their lives in a fresh and wonderful and powerful way. So when we have people come up for confirmation, if, you have fa if you're family members or friends and you want to join in the laying on of hands, that's fine. Um, and there's not another service after this, so we can just um, party on until, uh, until we're done. Let God do the, um, the wonderful work that he does. But remember, it's always good. It's always delightful. Nobody is ever wounded by God. He is always uh, redemptive. Uh, the scripture says, even though people expect they're going to hear judgment from God, that it's his kindness 
that leads us to repentance so our lives can come in line with what he uh, calls for as the Lord, uh, the boss of our lives. And it's always right to say yes to his lordship. Uh, yesterday, we met with the confirmands and others came from the church as well, and we talked about um, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but there's also the attendant thing that comes with our call before God, and that is uh, to walk in authority. So this morning, I want to spend a little time talking about the authority that we're given in Christ, and then he also gives us the power to carry that out. The gospel lesson we had today was after the resurrection, when Jesus was with the 11 disciples. Remember, Judas was gone now. Um, they went away, went back up to Galilee. You've got Jerusalem, uh, and then you would pass through Nazareth, where um, uh, Mary lived, and then on farther to the north, up uh, to the Sea of Galilee, which is a gigantic lake. Um, it's where most of Jesus' ministry took place in the Galilean area, and most of that on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, you could actually, in an afternoon, walk through all of the places that are talked about in the Galilean ministry that Jesus had for three years. So his presence there really permeated that area, and they would like to, they like to return there um, because of... Uh, the fruit that they'd seen, and here after the resurrection, they go into the region of Galilee uh, to the mountain that Jesus had appointed for them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But I love this. But some doubted. These are the guys, churches are named after, we have stained glass windows. After meeting him, after seeing him in the resurrection, they were still doubting him. Before you're too hard on him, though, uh, let's say... It was kind of a revolutionary time. They weren't used to seeing people tortured to death who would rise again three days later and show them his wounds, pass through walls into locked rooms, um, and teach them. So it was a little unsettling. So I think we could give them a bit of a pass on having some doubts about what was going on because some of them must have felt like, my gosh, have we gone crazy? We saw Jesus die, and yet he's alive. We saw his wounds, and yet he's not encumbered by them anymore. Uh, what's happening? And in fact, um, shortly after the sermon time, we'll be doing the creed, and it took three centuries for the church to work out what had happened. So it's not terribly surprising that the eyewitnesses to the resurrection uh, we're a little confused about what happened. So let's take a vote. All those who are in favor of giving some grace to those who doubted. Okay, yes, because there may be a time when we need some grace too, and that would be good. So then Jesus gave them what is often called the Great Commission. Uh, there are two great commissioning passages, the one from John on Easter evening where he said, as the Father sent me, I send you. But now he says this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So 
how is it that Jesus wound up with all authority? Well, people can try and take authority, but it's really best manifest when authority is given by a competent uh, jurisdiction. That competent jurisdiction has the right to reign in that sphere of influence and shares with someone else first a call. And the call is to do such and such. In the case of Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were in heaven. They existed throughout all eternity past. They <coughs> excuse me, had joined together in creation. They had watched the creation of man and the fall and knew that there was going to have to be redemption. And so God the Son volunteers because it is his role to flesh things out. After all, he was the one who actually was the agent of creation. It was the Father's will created by uh, God the Son speaking uh, the words of life and calling things to life. And the Holy Spirit was yearning, longing, brooding, and cheerleading the creation to go on. But they'd seen the fall, and now they knew there had to be redemption. And so God the Son says, I will fulfill your will, Father, and I will go into the earth. He came as a baby, conceived by the Holy Spirit, um, in Mary's uh, body, was born as a human, being both God and man at the same time. Um, another concept a little difficult to get our um, hands around. You may notice uh, that bishops, when they give a blessing, will often hold their hands like this. These two fingers together here stand for the two natures of Christ, the human nature and divine nature, which are found in him. And then the three fingers that form a circle are the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making one circle, which is um, about the unity of the, uh, the Trinity. So Jesus is born into the world, and he is given the call from God to reestablish the dominion or the lordship of God in the earth, which had been lost because of the sin and rebellion of the fall. Now, when there is disobedience and rebellion, how do you reestablish the lordship of God? Well, part of it is there has to be obedience. So where there's disobedience, the tonic to that is to bring things into obedience. And so you see Jesus saying, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say the things the Father tells me. In every respect, he obeyed the will of the Father completely. So every step he took, every place he went, he was reestablishing through his obedience he was reestablishing the dominion of the Father that had been lost through sin. Paul tells us in Philippians that not only did he walk faithfully, but he humbled himself. And interestingly, he, he did not do his ministry on the earth in the power of being God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself and, be, and humbled himself, and he lived as a man. He set aside all of the prerogatives of godhood and didn't draw on those. 
He lived only as a man submitted to the will of the Father and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now granted, he did not have the momentum of sin in his life like we do that trips us up. But he was a man like us in every respect, only he alone, Hebrews says, did not sin. So Paul says in Philippians that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and became obedient even unto death upon the cross. So why if he was reestablishing the dominion of God with his obedience, why did he go to the cross? Well, he had a relationship of uh, subjection or submission to the will of the Father and was reestablishing uh, dominion around him, but he wanted to share that with us so we could be restored back to the Father. So we have this, uh, this problem of sin in our lives. Many people think that sin is an insurmountable obstacle. It's a terrible problem for God. Not so much. Um, God is able to deal with our sin. We are the ones that have a problem. Because of our sin, when God's holiness is manifest, we want to hide. You saw it with Adam and Eve where they went and hid in the bushes. They wanted to cover themselves with, um, with leaves because they realized they were naked and suddenly they had issues of toxic shame in their life that they had to, to deal with. And we all have points in our lives of uh, rebellion against God and sin. And so what do we do with those things? Because God stands outside time, the past, the present, and the future are all present to him at the same time, the way that the present is to us. So if you only sinned when you were a young child, that doesn't go away. It is in front of God, and it is dominating our relationship with him, even if we try and forget about it. So what Jesus does is, theologically, it's absolutely brilliant. He comes to us and says, here, give me your sin. I'll take your sin, and I'll take it to myself I'll bear the weight of it, and I will actually die with it. And that way it can disappear. It can be completely forgiven and gone. And so we give ourselves to Jesus with our sin, and he takes that sin and dies with it. And then why is it that he has to uh, die on a cross? Why is there shedding of blood? It's because God says the life is in the blood and sin brings death to us. So Jesus pours out his life, his life blood, his life pours into our death and gives us new life. Um, that's why Paul said, I determined only to know Christ and him crucified. Because the cross is the the place where all these things come together. And then in the resurrection, we see the celebration of Jesus' victory is complete. And he um, emerges out as the king, and king, king of kings and lord of lords. So authority is given to him by a competent jurisdiction, and that's the father. A call is given to him, a call to obey the father in the world and to be obedient even unto death ultimately to rise again. 
And then as he lives obedient to the call, after that point, the um, competent jurisdiction gives an authentication of faithfulness. And so that's what's happened. It's the authentication of the faithfulness of Jesus, which is, um, is spoken where the name is given to him, that is the name um, above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus gives us this perfect example of competent authority issuing a call, obedience to the call, faithfully fulfilling the call, then being recognized and authenticated for that where he is elevated and given the name that is above every name. And in a small way, we're called to do the same thing. See, living under authority isn't limiting it's actually liberating. Um, give you an example. If you're in a swimming pool and you're kind of floating around in the middle of the pool and I say, would you go that way? And you begin to swim, you go that way. But then if you are by me and I say, I want you to go that way, but you can push off from me. So you curl your legs up and push them against my chest and then you push away, you have the same legs, you have the same muscles, you have the same strength, but there's more fruit from it. You're manifesting more power because there's something to push off from. Now, we're both floating in the pool, so some of the energy is lost as I um, am pushed back and as you move forward. But imagine this, if we go to the edge of the pool and I'm at the wall of the pool and I say, push off from me, when you push off, I've, there's nowhere I can go because the wall is there. So all of that energy is multiplied. So now your muscle strength is multiplied by being under authority. And the same thing works in our lives when we come under um, authority. We have our strength multiplied and our fruit is increased. So Jesus says, all authority is given to me, so now I'm sending you. And what does he tell us to do? He tells us to do something that we have not done yet. We haven't taught all that he commands. We haven't baptized everybody. And we haven't made disciples of all nations. In fact, we haven't even made disciples of this nation. And I want to suggest that it's about time the church steps up and fulfills our vocation that Jesus has given to us to disciple the land around us. In 1992, I was sitting in my office in March and I was thinking back with heartbreak over some things that had happened. In January, I had been invited by a group of bishops called the Irenaeus Fellowship. They were the self-described biblically conservative bishops uh, in the Episcopal Church. Um, and I had 
finished a doctorate at Fuller, and I was doing a lot of clergy conferences and consulting with churches. And so the bishops asked me to come to their meeting in San Antonio. We went to the St. Anthony Hotel, and we're all sitting in the lobby. of 95 bishops, or probably at least 90 of them were there, out of the 150 bishops in the church. 95 of them described themselves as biblical conservatives. And they said, uh, well, Father, do you have any advice for us? And I hadn't thought of it before, but it kind of welled up from inside me. And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. If you don't discipline Bishop Jack Spong, you're going to lose the whole church. Jack Spong was a bishop who set as his life's work to deny every line of the creed and every doctrine of the church. He denied the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, um, the atonement, the resurrection of the dead, uh, Jesus' resurrection, the authority of the scriptures. Explicitly in writing, line by line, he denied every line of the creed. And I said, if you don't fix that, then there's a hole in the side of the boat and it's going to sink. You're going to lose the whole church. And tragically, those bishops said, well, we're, we're not willing to do that. I said, well, then you're going to lose the whole church. And guess what? They wound up losing the whole church. It took a while for it to all play out, but they did. The second thing that happened was I was teaching at a national church conference on church planting, and I was supposed to be the celebrant at the closing communion, and somebody from the church headquarters in New York came up to me just before the communion service and said, oh, there's a change in the service today when you get to the Lord's Prayer, you'll have to pray, Our Mother who art in heaven. And I said, yeah, not going to happen. Um, so that's when I was anathematized by the National Church headquarters and um, was uh, just ejected from doing any teaching conferences or any, any consulting or anything else. Then in March, I was sitting in my office and I was looking at the church newspaper and the presiding bishop's Easter message was there. And in it, he didn't mention anything about Jesus. He didn't mention new life. He didn't even mention bunnies and eggs. Uh, but in it, um, and with the mixed company and children, I will clean this up. It actually, I could not read you what he wrote in the, in the paper. It's, it was just too uh, awful. But basically what he said is heterosexual couples are rewarded with children and um, homosexual couples don't get that reward. So without a reward, uh, their love is more pure. And so the church needed to turn itself so that it began to love the way that same-sex couples do, which is um, a complete embrace of brokenness and can't lead to um, any kind of fruitfulness. Well, I was really upset by it, and I remember I, I balled up the paper uh, into a ball, and I threw it across my office to the other side, and I, I remember, unusually, it actually went into the trash can. Uh, I usually missed. Um, and so I said, okay, now what do I do? And not out loud, but very, very clearly, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, stop wasting time with leaders that are making the church look like the world. Get on a plane and go to those places in the world where the bishops and archbishops are making the world around them look more like the kingdom of God. Ask them for leadership 
and help. And so I did. Uh, that was 1992. And uh, since then, millions and millions and millions of miles of travel, and we found out that there was wonderful help to be had. Um, those of you who were involved in the early days of All Saints with um, Bishop Gideon Gathega from Thika coming, and <clears throat> after meeting him, many people said, oh, now I've seen a bishop. Now I see what a bishop looks like. And we, con we uh, constantly got those words as people found faithful bishops from um, you know, Rwanda, Nigeria, Kenya, um, uh, Central Africa, West Africa, um, they were amazing in helping us. Eventually, GAFCON called for the start of a new Anglican church here in North America, which is us, the Anglican church in North America. Um, and uh, we have a good and godly start, and we're growing, and we have the right beliefs and so on, but we have not fulfilled what Jesus told us to do. He told us, to teach all that he had commanded, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to disciple the nation. So we have some stepping up to do that we need to ask him specifically, how do we go about in Jackson, Tennessee, um, being faithful to your word to do what you want done in order to disciple this part of the nation here? And how do we uh, manifest faithfulness to bring about the discipling of the whole nation and participate in all the nations uh, of the earth being discipled? Because Jesus said to disciple all nations. Now part of that, when you say nations in the Bible, uh, that can mean people groups not necessarily just countries, like you think of Switzerland and Guatemala and uh, India and Spain, those are nations, but people groups are all, also nations. Um, it's called hoi ethnoi, where we get ethnic um, in English, that, uh, that's the, the nation or the people groups. Um, so how are we going to do that? Well, part of it is that we have to create a culture that says yes to God and says yes to his lordship. And like Jesus, we go about our lives obeying what the Father is calling us to do. And we don't shrink back when it's costly. Um, I'm doing... Uh, a lot of work now with um, uh, MBBs. MBBs are Muslim background believers. People that have come um, out of Islam, they have had an experience of Jesus as the Lord, and they are all in. Islam is not just a religion. It's not just talking about going to the mosque, but Everything is included. The economic system, banking, education, family, military, um, laws, um, faith, everything is included in that. And when a person comes to Christ from a Muslim background and they become a believer in Jesus, they lose everything. 
it costs them everything to embrace Christ. I have many, many people that I've met that have lost their families, they lost their jobs, they lost their bank accounts. Um, and one um, a man that I work closely with, is a great leader, they actually, where he lived, they passed a law in the country revoking his name. He was no longer allowed to use his name. He lost everything to come to Christ. It is inspirational to be with these people. And not only are they willing to give up everything that they had, but they say yes to Jesus in the most costly ways, and they're absolutely amazed to find out that there are followers of Jesus who are lightly committed. Um, they sort of saying, well, uh, how can that be? How can that be? And part of it is that we need to have a vision of what it means to be obedient followers of Christ uh, and to come under his authority. But we also need the strength to do it. And so the um, authority that God gives has to be coupled with strength. But I want to say one more thing about authority. You notice in the gospel lesson uh, yesterday, if you were here for the ordination, it says Jesus sent them out two by two and gave them authority over demons and over sickness to cast out demons and to heal. Um, some people think that because we're in Christ and Christ has all authority, that means I have all authority. Not quite. We are given authority over ordinary garden variety demons and we're given authority to, to pray to overcome sickness. But there are high-level powers and principalities. Um, St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and dominions, the forces of darkness. These upper-level forces are really, really powerful. And it's a mistake for us to think that we have absolute authority and we can just tell them what to do. In the book of Jude, which is just one short chapter, so you don't say Jude chapter 1, verse 9. If you want to quote verse 9, just say Jude um, 9. We read this. Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against uh, the devil a reviling accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And what we're finding is when we are battling against upper level, high level cosmic powers, principalities and dominions, that the best way to pray is to go to Jesus and ask him to rebuke them. Like the ordinary little guy demons we can you know, tell to get lost and cast out or whatever. But this upper level stuff that puts a pall over a whole nation, that puts a, a whole nation in its grip. It could be a principality of poverty like you see in some uh, of the African nations and some nations in um, Asia. Uh, if we're coming against those things, the smart way to pray, to keep from being eaten alive uh, by getting out of our uh, pay grade, so to speak, is to speak to them and to say, the Lord rebuke you. Lord, would you rebuke 
those high-level powers. Because even Michael, who was an archangel, didn't rebuke Satan when he was contending with him because the, the devil wanted Moses' body. And um, the father said no. And so when Michael the archangel went, because Satan had been an archangel and had fallen, his office was recognized. And for those high-level um, cosmic powers, we say the Lord rebuke you rather than trying to take authority ourselves. I think it's a, one of the important keys to uh, how we should pray in order to see change in the, uh, the way we see the country um, brought into faith and we see the fruit that Jesus wants us to bear. To pray the Lord rebuke you to all of those powers and principalities, the cosmic powers that are there that are uh, perverting and subverting the way things should be. If we add that into um, our lives and ministries and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and for the insights from the Holy Spirit to guide us, then we will bear more fruit than we have been bearing. But I believe the church has to be honest in saying we have been losing the battle and we should have been winning because God has all the power and it is not impossible for him to turn anything around. He turned a valley of dry bones into soldiers. He turned spiritually dead people into live children of the kingdom. He brought the dead body of Jesus out of the tomb and he can raise the problems and struggles in our lives and in our nation to the place where they reflect the kingdom of God. To do that, we need to be under his authority and we need to manifest the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we walk. And I'll tell you what, that is the most fruitful place to be is in the center of God's will, surrendering to his authority over us exercising the authority that he delegates to us and walking in the power of the Spirit. And then we're going to see amazing things happen. And I believe you can see change happen in the community around the church. It's happening all over the world. And we can experience the same thing as well. Now to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be ascribed almighty majesty, dominion, and power as is most justly due, both now and forever. Amen.